Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Titus. We're still in chapters 2, and this morning we'll be reading verses 7 through 10. Let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word. We'll do this responsively. I'll read verse 7 and then together on verse 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the God of our, of our, our Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, with our Bibles open, we ask that you open our mind, open our heart. If necessary, adjust our attitude, but put us in the place where we can learn, be a good student of your word as you are our teacher. Thank you for this opportunity. May we make the most of it for your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, I'd like to ask you to think with me through a question. We'll use this question to help us understand this passage. And that is, which is more important? Ask yourself, who I am or what I do? Because those are two different things. Is it more important what I do? Maybe at the workplace, what it is I'm skilled at, what I get paid to do, what I contribute to society, or what I am inside where no one can see. Even the people closest to you cannot see into your mind or into your heart. That territory is only for you and your Creator. And sometimes those can be two drastically different things. And the reason why I bring it up is because this, again, is one of those places I think that we are at odds with the culture that we live in. I would suppose that these days it really doesn't matter at the office whether or not a man is a tyrant in his home if he gets his job done. And maybe the better he is, or the more important he is, or how he affects the bottom line of the business, that business at his home is his business. We'll look the other way. It doesn't matter. That doesn't concern us. There's a division between our professional selves and our domestic selves, and even more so than domestically, inside our heart, who we are, what we believe, our character. Uh, it's been said before that the definition of true character is what a man is in the dark when no one's looking by himself. That's who we really are. So we'll use that thinking our way through these few additions that Paul makes to this second chapter of Titus, the, the chapter given over to what accords with sound doctrine. We have our sound doctrine, that's what we believe, but what accords with it is how we work out that belief in our actual behavior. And we've covered so far specific groups, older and younger men and older and younger women. 
And Paul is for a second time in this chapter going to speak directly to Titus as if to answer the how question. He's speaking to Titus, telling him how to teach the older men, how to teach the older women, how the older women are actually to teach the younger women, and how he's to teach the younger men. That's verse 6 where we left off last week, even though we took that out of order uh, for purpose of our study. But with specifically the context of younger men, how is Titus to teach them to be self-controlled? Well, verse 7 and 8 give us the answer to that. If we looked back at verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he talks about other groups. He's back with Titus. Show yourself in verse 7 in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So if we break that verse down, it's basically a two-pronged argument. One, you're to be a model, Titus. As if to say, in a general sense, you're just to be an example. How does Titus teach the older men, teach the older women to teach the younger women and show the younger men how to be self-controlled? By modeling it himself. And the way it seems to be written here, all of those things that were for the others apply to this person as if he's held up as the actual example for the rest of the body to look at. That's a tall order. And that's quite difficult. And all of this we're going to read has to do not with what he does necessarily, but what he is. In a very practical sense. That it doesn't matter if the man sells a million copies of his sermons. If he's a fake, he's useless as far as Paul is concerned. So if in a general sense he's to be an example, then specifically it says, In your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. So two different things. The first is an example. And it does seem that the human being is hardwired to follow models, doesn't it? I mean, we, we typically t- tend to emulate someone, somehow. Uh, I went fishing on Friday. First thing I did was ask as many questions as I possibly could to people who had been there already. What did you do? How did it work? What didn't work? This tie that I'm wearing. I didn't go to YouTube to figure out how to wear it or tie it. I learned that from my father by watching him do it a thousand times. Same as shining shoes or putting together colors. Dad was a a clothing salesman at a suit store. So he, he knew what to do with that type of thing. I don't ever remember him sitting me down for a lesson like in a classroom. But I picked those things up along the way. And so do you. Maybe not as far as the way you dress or the way you fish. But in so many other different ways. And spiritually speaking, it shouldn't surprise us that this is any different. We need models. Someone ahead of us to show us what to do. It's why the older men are so important to us, younger men. How else are we going to know how this is supposed to look? Unless they model those things for us. 
So that's the first idea, generally speaking. Specifically, though, Titus, work hard on your teaching. Seems to be what is said here. Because there's actually some ingredients listed as to what needs to be part of his teaching. Even the teaching that accords with sound doctrine. We have a listing there. It needs to have integrity, dignity, and it needs to be sound in its speech. The reason for that being that it's, it's not able to be scrutinized where attacks of it would stick to it so that an opponent may be put to shame rather than your teaching be put to shame. So what does it say about his teaching and how is he supposed to put it together? Let's look at those. First of all, it should be done with integrity. And this again is in contrast with what we read in chapter 1 where we were reading of the type of teaching that we shouldn't put up with as a church from leaders that would not be qualified to do so. It says there in verse 10 in chapter 1, For there are many who are insubordinate, they're empty talkers, and they're deceivers. They're deceiving you. Their words are empty. And they do not align themselves under the authority of anyone else. This is the exact opposite of that. Your teaching should be integrity, dignity, sound speech. Now this is where you may recall a few weeks ago where, uh, and I I remember someone commenting on this, it's incumbent upon us to take this 2,000-year-old book and to take its wasness. Its wasness is 2,000 years old, right? And then see how it fits in this isness. Okay? We've got to build a bridge from that culture. And it's difficult to do sometimes. Not only did they speak a different language in a different culture, even if we got in a plane and went to Crete, we're still about 2,000 years off. We'd not just need an airplane, but a time machine to be able to really get in on what, where they were when they lived. So sometimes there's some translation we need to do, modern speaking. Um, we're 2,000 years removed. I would say that the temptation... As far as your speech and speaking to a large group of people, leading a group of people as a pastoral staff or as a body of deacons or elders, I'd say these days in an American culture, the temptation is probably going to be to turn this whole thing into a business. Because I do believe that Jesus as a business in America is doing just fine. People are very comfortable supporting financially a ministry that fits their needs. If you can tell them what they want to hear and make them feel good when they're leaving, they'll pay for that. Just like they'll pay for a movie or a vacation or any other thing that makes them happy and makes them feel good, right? If we read our Bibles, how often are we feeling good? certain times but there are other times where it doesn't feel good at all so if the end goal the bottom line is people in the pews sprawling buildings 
a big footprint, then it might serve you better to eliminate those places and push the other places. What you've done is you've violated the integrity of the word you claim to believe in doing so. That to me is what I think would be probably temptation number one. Have you noticed that on a lot of church websites these days, you'll find something uh, to the tune of maybe even verbatim, and I think this is the way ours is as well, what to expect. And that is for anyone who's new to be able to have some idea of what they should expect when they come in and sit down. I think that's new. I don't think that that's the way it used to be for a long time. Uh, you turn on the Waltons. You, you pretty much had just a few brands of churches. There's the Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, maybe the Episcopals. And if you watch the Christmas special, you remember the old man going out late at night to ring the bell because the other churches would be ringing the bell. He's going to ring the bell. But that's about all the information you needed to know what to expect. The Baptists, when it comes time to baptizing, are going to put them under the water, right? Presbyterians are going to sprinkle with water, maybe even with babies. But doctrinally, that's the difference in them. Now, you need more than that. You need to know what kind of music are they going to sing. Because before, they probably largely sang the same stuff. What kind of clothes are they going to wear? Going to dress up? Going to dress down? Going to dress medium? <laughs> what type of decoration do they have? Is it bright? Or is it controlled lighting and it's dark? What about the programs they've got? Because if I'm going to be part of this church, I want to have a pretty good perk card. And I want to get it punched a lot. I want them to have a lot of stuff. Big menu's better than small menu, right? Now, I'm poking fun slightly. But that's the difference between the Americanized culture of Christianity in America. And I do believe a lot of that is pitched toward the interest of the consumer who's filling those church pews. Is that a model of integrity in preaching? That would be the question. And some do that well, some do that wrong. And we've got to be able to see the difference between the two. If the teaching isn't done with integrity to the gospel message, it would be very easy to mislead the body into thinking that the whole thing is engineered to make them happy or to meet their needs. Rather than for the glory of God Almighty, much of which we sang with the first song because he's worthy of it. He not only died in our place, but when it comes time to judge the world, he's the only one worthy to even open the scroll to do it in the first place as a sinless sacrifice for a sinful world. That's got to be the objective. And that's where the integrity to the scripture is. So we've got to make sure that that doesn't... That, that's why integrity is important. And after all... How much of this little short book has been given over to this young man telling him to tailor his approach to the interest of his audience? Or any other New Testament passage for that matter. Now this is in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you and you listen. 
This is Paul talking about this type of thing. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. It's the mercy of God that put that ministry together. He says, we don't lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. As if some had not. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend to ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Don't you like that? The open statement of the truth. There's nothing hidden. And it's all open as if not to avoid certain things you wouldn't necessarily want to showcase. I always get a kick out of some of those car ads that run during the football commercials and how they get the professional at the end talks so fast you can't understand anything that he's saying. Or how our government has to put together those truth in lending forms, which are usually the cover sheet before you sign away on an automobile or anything else. And in big, bold writing in blocks, uh, it's almost like interest rates for dummies. So you know not only what rate you're spending, but at the end of the period of time, how much extra you're going to pay in addition to the price of the actual car. Because why? The salesman, it's not in his best interest to show you that. You might think your way through it and decide, I'm not paying that much. So it's in the best interest of God's people to know the whole book. So we look with caution at someone who would cherry pick for the purpose of say the bottom line of the church being we know we all would rather enjoy a humorous sermon than a sermon that absolutely takes us apart by that living cutting exposing word of God but we teach through entire books verse by verse and as God speaks we listen and if God is judging or God is merciful that's God's business and not the teacher's. That's what seems to be Paul's point to young Titus. And this is just one example of why a church's teaching should be with integrity. Some might say, as long as the man keeps me interested, what difference does it make if, if he has any fidelity to the Scripture? Well, it makes all the difference in the world. Also, his teaching should be a model of dignity. So teach with integrity, but teach with dignity. And this actually seems to color up the method he uses to teach. It isn't as much what he's teaching, but how he's teaching it. So you could ask yourself the question, how does one teach with dignity? Well, maybe not a lot different than the way an older man would live with dignity. I've already seen that word in this chapter perhaps it starts with the seriousness about opening the Bible or singing through the Bible explaining what we're singing and the one who wrote it and, and how that he's explaining scripture but in the context of what happened in his life why do we go to the purpose of reading the scripture together and if you're here for the whole series we will have read through an entire book of scripture a short one but still, to read every last word of it. Maybe there's a seriousness that goes with opening the Bible as an understanding and awareness of what we've actually got in our hands. It's not 
some type of put on stiffness on purpose. When I was a student at Liberty, I used to get a kick out of sometimes meeting some of the pastors, speakers that would come through. And I always thought it was interesting that when you shake their hand, perhaps at a booth or something at a conference, they have a different voice that's normal like the rest of us. <laughs> but in, on the platform or in the, the pulpit, there's this rhythmic cadence to what they're saying. And uh, there seems to be this put on depth to their voice. And even some words end with different sounds. They go up at the end. But the, the, and all that's gone when you're talking to them normal. And, and you wonder, what's the purpose of that? Is it some just manufactured uh, churchy something or another? We don't know. We shouldn't, we shouldn't, the, the point is with dignity in our, our worship service, none of it is to be manufactured and put on to take away from our own personalities. We will laugh, we will cry, but we need never forget why we're here, what we're reading, and who wrote it. We're not here to be entertained. We're here to hear from the words of God and what they say to our frame, our, our, our person, our behavior, our mind, our heart. And we must be true to God's word. Understanding the instruction of the word of God in order to obey it. And then finally here, and before I go to the next point, use this as a reminder to pray for your pastoral staff there's so many different things you could pray for for those men pray that they'll be true to God's word with dignity sometimes it, it's easy to just go light over everything it was John Stott I'd mentioned this who said some people won't take serious, serious subjects unless the one doing the speaking is himself serious. So there has to be some gravity to it. But at the same time, we're, we are human. And then finally, Titus' teaching should be sound speech that cannot be condemned. And rather than try to explain what this means, there's an illustration from the pages of Scripture, I think, that sums it up pretty well. Just, just listen. This is from Acts 26. Paul is on trial. He's standing in front of Festus. And as he was saying this, these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things happened or has escaped his notice, the king's notice, for this has not been done in a corner. In other words, Festus, I'm playing fair, not making up things, not twisting things. I'm using normal logic that makes sense. And Festus, as excellent as he was, was not able 
to counter that argument because it's sound, it makes sense. Our teaching does not have to be perfect, and when we think it is, we're wrong because we're not perfect. And you, you remember the, the comment about the Monday morning hangover after you go back and think, now, was I correct in the things that were said about Scripture? Was I truthful to the text? Did I explain it as it was meant to be understood? And was the articulation of how we're actually supposed to obey it cogent? We're not perfect. So there's no such thing as perfect teaching. But it is sad if a pastor, as Paul did, in his argument with an opponent, can't even manage to have his argument stand the test of reason. You might have heard the joke where the kid asked the evangelist, that thing you were saying a while ago, was that true or were you just preaching? <laughs> there shouldn't be no such thing as a difference between what's true and just preaching. Now, there will be an opponent. It says, if an opponent comes to argue what you say should be in such a shape that they have no way to chop it. And if they try, the shame is on their head rather than on your argument. Doesn't mean we go looking for a fight. That would be out of step with what? Dignity. It's not dignified for your pastors to be looking for fights. It's not what we do. But if a fight should come looking for you... Teach in a way that is sound so that the shame, again, is on the head of the opponent. So I'll ask that question again before we go to the next two verses. Which is more important, what you actually do or who you actually are? Do your leaders here, your pastoral staff, on the inside... Is their commitment to the integrity and dignity of the Word of God? If such, that's what will come out of them. But if something other than integrity and dignity is coming out, maybe it's not just a problem with what they're doing, but what's on the inside, who they are as well. That's why this is so important. Does it make a difference if the man can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but has not love? As Paul talked about in Corinthians 13. Who your pastors are on the inside has everything to do with what they are on the outside. Now Paul adds one more category here. And we'll use the same question. What you do or who you are. Look at verse 9. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. Showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the, gospel, the, the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, it looks as if Paul makes little or no distinction between slaves who had Christian masters and those who did not. And the reason I say little or no is back to that word everything, that they uh, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. What, you, you mean everything? What if my master tells me to do something that the Bible would tell me not to do? Well, there's your exception. We've got to obey God rather than men. So it seems as if he may be talking about slave owners who are within the body of Christ that he's writing to. 
But even if they're not, does it matter? If we can live peaceably with those lost slave owners, shouldn't we? I think that fits the point of the whole argument, that it really doesn't matter whether they're saved or lost. As long as they're not asking you to do something that violates your understanding of Scripture, the idea is to be submissive to them. Because when it gets to the end, the reason is that you'll adorn the gospel and make it attractive to them. Now here's, again, wasness to isness. We don't have slaves and masters now. And some have gone to great lengths to ask the big question, why did Paul, why did Jesus not outright call for the abolition of slavery way back 2,000 years ago? Well, if you knew anything about Roman history, that wouldn't have been an easy task. In fact, that'd probably be the quickest way to absolutely be the end of all the Christians. Because if it came up to slavery or Christianity, they're going to go with slavery, as did much of culture until not that long ago comparatively. But what was it that actually led to the abolition of slavery? People just thinking, you know, this is dumb? Or scripture that Paul and Jesus was talking about and its ramifications as the way we behave ourselves, it just did no longer make sense. That's another topic for another time. But for now, the way we look at it is bosses and employees. Employer-employee relationship. That fits here. And all that is said here should work there as well. So it doesn't matter. There's, there's really no distinction unless your boss is asking you to do something that would violate Scripture. You submit to him as far as possible. They are told their fundamental duty is to be submissive to their masters in everything, voluntarily accepting subjection to their masters as a matter of principle, as far as possible. Only exception being violation of Scripture. So the next things that are listed here about well-pleasing, submissive, argumentative in the negative, pilfering in the negative, don't do either of those, show all good faith... There's a number of these. We'll list them out each. And here's a side note. Young people, listen up. You want a job? Would you like to be gainfully employed? Your parents would like for that to be true. (laughs) Especially if you're still living with them. And there's a time and a place for everything. Solomon tells us. The reason why Paul is talking in these terms for the purpose of adorning the gospel and making it look attractive, there's a lot of things attached as fringe benefits to adorning the gospel and a life lived in line with what we're seeing here in Scripture. And one of those fringe benefits is bosses will absolutely love you because they'll trust you. You'll make them money. They won't worry about you. And it used to be that Christians were considered some of the best employees there were. Not necessarily so much anymore. In fact, I think the Mormons beat us in that category. People like to hire Mormons because of their loyalty, their trust, their hardworking nature. So let's see what he has to say to the person who can make the gospel look good if you'll act this way. First of all, is humble. And that's because it says they're to be submissive to their own masters and everything. It's going to require your humility to be submissive to someone else. That's just human relationships. I wrote this down. 
What this means is that we are con to consider voluntary what is obligatory. And if you're trading a paycheck for a job, then the boss gets to say what the job is and how you do it, right? That is, in, of course, if you want the check at the end of the day or the week or the month. So there's certain things that are obligatory. You're obliged to do those because you're receiving compensation. So you could just say that's business. But Paul is saying, take it a step further. There may be certain things that just rub you the wrong way, but you're the Christian, and you want them to know your Savior. So things that may be put as obligatory, you look at it differently. Look at that as voluntary. I'm willingly doing what I wouldn't do in another situation because I want to show Jesus to this person. This might even actually, without getting into too much trouble... Be what was mentioned earlier with the young women being submissive to their husbands. Who may or may not be worthy of such a thing. But to consider something that is culturally obligatory in that case. As something this young woman would do voluntarily. Might be the biggest lighthouse for Jesus in that home than anything else would be. Shine brighter than anything else. Why would she do this when she doesn't have to? Or put it another way. It looks like she's doing this because she wants to rather than because she has to. Why would she do that? Maybe to adorn the gospel of Jesus. Now in this case it was forced labor. And because of the way our wages work in some parts of America. Where the pay is far less than would be normal. It's actually degrading. Demeaning. Voluntary service, even for slaves or those that are being paid poorly, is quite a noble thing, Paul is saying. That's humility. Also, add to that, reliable. They are to be well-pleasing. Now, half-hearted work, laziness, carelessness, cutting corners, is that reliable? No. Is that well-pleasing? No. But if you are the opposite of those things, hardworking, energetic, very careful, conscientious, no cut corners, that's a reliable employee who is well-pleasing to his boss or her boss. Non-combative, add that to the list. That means non-argumentative. And depending on the circumstances, this might be the hardest one yet. You tell me. If they took out the water cooler from the office. You know, that's where you go to gripe about the boss, right? What would they talk about in the office? I was glad there was no water cooler here. When I got to the office. But think about that. Think about the time you spend talking about what you don't like about a job. And really, we don't have to become legalistic about this. You know in your heart whether or not what you're saying is slighting the one you're talking about. But not only are you to do the job the right way from the previous two, you're not to complain about it in the process, is what means not to be argumentative. Then there's honest. Young people, you getting this? I'm telling you. You interview for a job or intern, you're not going to get away from them. This is important. 
not pilfering. This is a word for embezzlement. It literally means laying on one side. This is your boss's stuff, but you're going to lay it on your side of the stuff. Of course, without him knowing. And we could be talking about paper clips, or we could be talking about you know, a sizable percentage of what he's not paying attention to. But that's not at all to be part of the Christian who expects to be a good witness. Loyal. And this is the last one before the uh, final argument. And that is showing all good faith. And this is what I like to refer to as a show and tell word. Because it says showing all good faith. This is going to need to be a deliberate uh, a deliberately chosen thing that you do in the eyes of those who are watching for the purpose of demonstrating or proving something. You've heard of good faith, a, a, a good faith proposal that we're, we're all on the same sheet of paper, that we're doing our best to make sure no one's misunderstanding what's going on. But this good faith loyalty... Here's your example for this. This is what took Daniel in the Old Testament from middle management to a senior role in the kingdom of Babylon. The man was trustworthy. He was loyal, even though he didn't agree with this man. He was, he was the one that taught us the way to make a biblical appeal. You remember the king's meat? They knew they weren't supposed to eat that. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat. Remember that? Dad used to talk about this. He said that's called advanced decision making. Kids, make your decisions before you ever get in the spot where you need to think, oh no, what do I do here? I've been faced with something. People are watching. And then you just roll. No, make the decision ahead of time. So when it comes, you saw it coming. And it doesn't matter what anybody else says. It's the right thing. And the people who are watching who own the business or the job or whatever else are taking notice, this kid is willing to stand on his own feet even if to do so means he's alone. That's huge. That's loyal. It makes a huge difference. Does your boss know that he or she has your loyalty? What it says here is that he's to show his loyalty. That means doing things purposefully to let your boss know. You've got my loyalty. And then all of this is done. Look at the last verse there in our passage. In everything that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And this is called winsome. It's an old word. You don't use it very often. It's a good word. Winsome. That the whole purpose for this is not that you're trying to angle or to posture or to contrive this, that, or the other. No. This is in good faith. The purpose for the way you act is that if someone knew that you were a Christian, they wouldn't be surprised. And by that point, they may actually be interested, if not completely in marvel as to what this guy, this gal has that I don't have, though I may have everything else in this world, to adorn the gospel of Jesus. 
Now, all this that we've been studying so far, and this is probably a good way to just close this up, and we've got a little bit of chapter 2 left. This is not some attempt to go dredge up and reinvigorate some Pauline type of religiosity. Like some people, it seems like they come out with a diet, a new diet every month or so based on a group of people that were healthier than we are. We're all sick now, so let's figure out what they ate, even if it was bugs, and we'll eat them now, and maybe we'll be better. And some people may think, well, our church is kind of flat. We'll, we'll, we'll find out what Paul did, and we'll try to do exactly what he did the way he did it, and maybe it'll work. This isn't that. These were meant to be timeless. We know what loyal and winsome and honest, these things. This is not rocket science. So this is not that. And it's certainly not some type of self-help legalism where, all right, we'll just apply ourselves to these things and see if we can't brush these things up and it'll all go better for us, especially if we're trying to compare ourselves with anybody else. There's a purpose for all this. It's for God's glory. It's not, this isn't for us. This is because of Him. It's not undif any different than the Westminster's Shorter Catechism question number one. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God made us in His own image to display His likeness. And that's what we're here to do. And we're never more attractive to the lost world when we look like our Creator. With this caveat, sometimes that attraction is an irritant with them too. You will have those opponents. You will make them look bad comparatively. But that's just the conscience that Romans talks about all the time that is convicting them of the disparity between their creator and how they're living. So we do this for the glory of God. And all these groups that have been mentioned so far, for the glory of God, that's why an older man doesn't need to lose his identity when he leaves the workplace. He's worked for this company all his life. This is what he does now that's over. He's retired. What does he do now? He's got his whole wealth of experience to share with young men. For the glory of God. For the older woman. Doesn't need to be lonely in an empty house. There's so many younger women who don't know what she knows that needs to know what she knows for the glory of God. For the younger women. At the end of the hundredth load of laundry, about the time they're thinking there's got to be more than this. There's that verse, the Old Testament, about not despising the day of small things. All those small things add up to perhaps a very marvelous life, those you're raising, one principle, one lesson, one no-no, one diaper at a time. For the glory of God, and then for the younger men, to know that he doesn't need to squeeze himself into this mold the world says he must squeeze himself into. You don't have to do that. You've got more going for you than this world or its notions of what's important or what's not. You're here because of what we sang this morning. Because there's a, a Savior at the right hand of the throne of His Father with the payment proven in the wounds of His hands 
that I took care of all that that they couldn't do on their own so that they could do it for his father's glory how did it go our surety do you think you can fail when you've got none other than Jesus Christ God's son as your surety that account's not going bust that's the bank of eternity and because of his glory we act this way to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ with that said let's bow in prayer Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for what it means and why it matters. And we thank you for what we've learned today, that there are certain ways we should act which backs up what we believe, which is because of your glory, no matter how mundane it may be, no matter how thankless it may be, no matter how, how toilsome how weary we become just to know that in the perspective of some other who is yet to know you personally we've drawn their notion perhaps even of your existence a little closer to reality thank you for this church and for its its not only its desire to know your word but it, its commitment to its integrity Thank you for this body of believers. I ask that you encourage them. Encourage the families. However that may look. Strengthen them this week. Build them up and use them and your word in their mouth to speak truth into something for your glory and honor. We thank you for our time together with you this morning and with each other. We ask this in your name. Amen. The Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, and cause his face to shine upon you. Dave Spivey will come to lead us in prayer, and after we pray together, we'll sing to one another, God be with you, till we meet again. Thank you, David. Please bow and pray with me. Father in heaven, how magnificent is your name. How blessed are we to be in your home today. Father, thank you for all the blessings you have poured out on your children and how sweet it is that your grace through faith allows us to be called children of God. As your children, I pray, Father, that we will work hard to be good children and please their Father. Help us, Lord, to study your word deeply, pray earnestly, and wait patiently for the guiding voice of the Holy Spirit as we live our lives here on earth. Lord, give us a heart and mind to help others. I pray that those on our prayer list will feel the effects of our prayers and you will bring healing and comfort and restoration to each one. Lord, I also pray for our mission of the week, Bonnie Pearson, and that her, effort, that our, <clears throat> excuse me, that her efforts will be aided by our financial and prayer support. Be with us now as we leave this place and let us be salt and light to an often dark world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.